Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We'll turn to the book of Acts. I know you thought we finished before I left, but we didn't. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Amen. This morning or this afternoon or tonight or all day. All day long I've been with Jesus. And that's a true statement. Amen. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading with verse number 1. Amen. Here this evening. Also, please don't forget there's ladies uh, retreat conference that's coming up as well in the month of September. And you need to, the sign-up sheet is up on the board for that as well. So please be advised. Verse number 1 of chapter 17 reads like this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and, Apollonia, and Apollonia, I can't even say that. They came to Thessalonica where it was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Tonight, I want to teach you along this, this subject matter. And uh, I'm kind of leaning on a verse here in Scripture, verse number 8, that last portion where it says, these, these are they which have turned the world, the world upside down or come. I want to teach on this. Upside down is right side up. Upside down is right side up. Amen. Lord Jesus, I come to you tonight, Lord. I'm grateful, Lord, another opportunity to be in the house of the Lord. I pray, God, that you would touch every hearer, Lord, this evening. God, your word is already anointed. God, touch these lips of clay, God, that they will pass over. Help us, God, to glean from and from the scriptures here tonight. God, give us, Lord, attention, Lord, to hear the words of the Lord. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. I want to say amen. 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 You may be seated. I imagine in probably two to three weeks you have forgotten everything from the book of Acts, at least the last chapter for sure. So just as a little brief review and introduction tonight, in chapter 16 where we were last prior to uh, us leaving for a few weeks, Lydia and her house had been influenced by the word that they had heard down by the river where they oftentimes went to pray. And they were so influenced that she and her household uh, was saved by the word of the Lord. Also, a girl with a spirit of divination 
had been troubling Paul and Silas, following them for several days. And finally, whenever Paul had enough of it, he turned around, rebuked that spirit of divination, and it departed from the girl. Finally, they end up in jail as a result of having rebuked the, 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 the spirit of divination from the girl because she had masters, she had people and rulers that were getting gain and money as a result of her uh, fortune-telling, whatever you wish to call it. And as a result of that, they were thrown in jail. And at the day's end, uh, when it was all said and done, the Philippian jailer and his household then likewise responded positively to the message that Paul and Silas shared with he and his family. And at the closure of Acts chapter 16, we read that the magistrates of the Roman government are headed to uh, the prison at the request of Paul to come and release him and Silas from prison. And so, uh, as we looked at several weeks ago, it closed that Paul and Silas goes just one more time to the house of Lydia to visit with her and those that have been saved of her household and several others of the brethren that have been gathered together. And so they are leaving. They've been asked really uh, to leave the city that they were in, of Philippi, and now they leave one city to guess what? To go back home to the church that sent them and say, well, it just didn't work out? No. But as their custom was, Whenever they were rejected by one city, they go through the open door of the next city that they can get to to spread the gospel and to spread the word. And that's exactly what they did. Paul and his missionary team goes to this next door because a shut door to them meant that they just need to look for an open door somewhere else. And so they were on their way, the Bible says, to Thessalonica. Interesting thing about Paul, his, his uh, characteristic his frame of mind and the frame of mind of his team is this, is that they did not take rejection as a reason to quit. Didn't take rejection as a reason, a reason to quit. They just took it as, well, we just have a change of venue now. We just have a change of direction now. If we can't continue here, we'll continue somewhere else. And so they go to Thessalonica. They're going to go to three places by the time chapter 17 is ended. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. They're going to visit these different places. And most of the time, the reason why they're changing places is because the last place they were at had rejected them. Had told them to go on their way. Amen. That they were not welcome there. And so they rejected many times by the unbelievers but they would be sent out safely, usually by the believers of these cities and towns that they visited. And so everywhere that they went, this is the story, folks. This is the story of the book of Acts. Everywhere they went, they included God's word. Everywhere. Everywhere they went, they incorporated God's word. One might think they would get a little reluctant after place after place being rejected and God's word being rejected. But that did not cause them to cower in a corner or go away with their tail tucked between their legs. They knew that if there was any hope for these cities, if there were any hope for these inhabitants, Jews, Gentile alike, it was going to be by the word of God. There was not some other gimmick. There was not some other way or means that would be more effective. But if it was going to happen, revival for these cities in the book of Acts, they knew unequivocally that it was going to be by the word of God. So everywhere they go, they're preaching the word, they're teaching the word, they're confirming the word, they're putting the word first and foremost. And that's interesting to me today because we talk about among our society that, Lord, we need to get back to a, Acts, a book of Acts church. 
And if we're going to get back to the book of Acts church, and it's going to take the word. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take devotion to these things because I'm living in a day that everybody is looking for a new way to be effective. Looking for a new gimmick. The, 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 the new, if you will, thing, read, reading, you know, books, and there's nothing wrong with that. I would be the last to say, but reading books, trying to find better ideas, you know, to somehow be uh, incognito and reach our world. But as I read through the pages of the book of Acts, they weren't trying to be secretive. They weren't trying to keep things of their beliefs a mystery that someone would learn of six to nine months later. No, from the go, from the start. They said that Christ, that Christ, that Messiah that you crucified, that was Jesus Christ. And he is your Savior and he's your King. He's the only one that has the ability to allay your sins and bring new life into you. They didn't do nothing but propagate the word of God. And folks, we will at times have things that complement what we do around here. But there's never going to be a program. There's never going to be anything that we devise around here that supersedes or takes place God's word. God's word is first and God's word is foremost. Everything else is just complementary. If it's going to save people, it's going to take his word. It's going to take his word. And so they were trying, many trying to find different methods and different ideas. But as I read through scriptures, and, and Paul does this at Thessalonica, he reasons with them from the scriptures. Amen. He preaches to them the scriptures. He proclaims it. He teaches it. He alleges the scriptures with them. He opens unto them the scriptures. So it's going to take the word. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay. Then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 harmonizes with that verse and says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. You want a church growth session? Propagate the word. In whom all, and I, there's other things we can do with that, but first and foremost, propagate the word. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. It says through Christ, through this foundation, through the apostles, through the prophets, through the propagating of all of that, there is a coming together of a building. There's a coming together of a church. There's a coming together of a habitation of God through the Spirit. Everybody say the Spirit. So here's our question I pose in my heart and mind tonight. Is it really possible to build a spiritual habitation for God and the foundation be carnally based? Can we build a spiritual house on a carnal foundation? No, no, no. The spiritual house belongs on a spiritual foundation. And in order for the house to be effective, the church to be effective, then the foundation truly must be spiritual. And if it's truly spiritual, preach the word, teach the word, proclaim the word, reason the word, open the word, allege the word. Amen. Preach Jesus. And so we have this group, this team with Paul, 
that has traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica. They stop at a couple places on the way. It's a, it's, it's a traveling distance of about 100 miles journey. They get to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a center of business. There's all kinds of trade routes that enter and leave the city. There's an arbor that's just adjacent to the city that brings imports and exports, allows exports as well. It's inhabited predominantly by a bunch of Greek people. It is a free city, which means that they can have they can be self-governed as Greeks after the Greek manner rather than being governed after the Roman pattern. So it's a free city. But it's here. Here it is. And I know you're saying, Brother McGee, over the past 17 chapters, some of this is redundant. They always preach the word. They always pray. And their message seems to have a similar, trait, similar theme of thought that goes through it. And yet whenever I read it, when they, whenever they, when the word increase, the multitudes multiply. And there's this being added to the church and that being added to the church. But they kept on preaching the same word. They kept praying, doing the same devotion of prayer. And they kept a sermon, by and large, that did not differ much from what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Hallelujah. God, take us back some acts praying, acts preaching. I don't have a balloon elephant to pull out of my pocket, but I can still pull out of my pocket. Acts 2.38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this promise is unto you and to your children and to those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God Someone say hallelujah. hallelujah. So Paul's tactics remain unchanged here in the city of Thessalonica. What does he do? As his manner was, he finds a synagogue. Because he's probably going to find Jews at the Jewish synagogue. And perhaps some God-fearing Gentiles at the synagogue. And guess what he does next? He's going to share the word. <sighs> So, Paul, tell me, how is it? What's our approach for the city of Thessalonica this week? We're going to the synagogue. We're going to preach. That's what we've been doing all along. Yep. <laughs> he goes there. He shares the Bible. He shares the word. Three, three, three weeks consistently. The Bible says for three Sabbaths, he did this. And note, here, he, to change it up just a little bit. Here at Thessalonica, rather than going through the long series of the sermon like Peter did on the day of Pentecost, Paul just kind of cuts to the chase with the sermon. And you've heard me every once in a while during preaching. I said, okay, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Well, that's what, that's, what, that's what Paul did here at this moment in verse number, verse number uh, three, I believe it was. Yes, verse number three. He said, Christ, he's talking to him. He said, Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus, and that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Christ. Now, again, we talked about it. I'll be redundant because Paul can be. Now I'm Paul. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Jesus' office. Christ means, the word Christ means anointed. The word Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament Messiah. And so what he was saying here, if I can 
replace Christ with Messiah, and I can without any injury. He said, Messiah, because this is what the Jews were looking for. He said, Messiah must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is your Messiah. Hmm. <laughs> but for the Jews to accept Jesus as the Christ, to accept Jesus as the Messiah, was a hard matter to accept because they knew they had a hand in killing Jesus. And if that was true, that that Jesus was their Messiah, they had a hand in killing their Messiah. And it was, it was hard for them to accept the fact that he had to suffer. And the reason for suffering, he said, it was, it must, Christ must needs have suffered. It was hard for them to accept the fact that Christ or Messiah or Jesus, all three in one, all three is the same, same person, that this individual had to suffer. And the reason being, it's because of their iniquity. Because Christ did not suffer for himself. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Isaiah writing what many call today the suffering servant. Everybody called this. Let me just call it what it is. It was the Messiah. It was Jesus Christ that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53. But note verse number 5. But he, speaking of this Messiah, this Christ, this suffering servant. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our Iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, that Christ, that Messiah, the iniquity of us all. See, the Jews are having a hard time because they're looking at this horrible picture of Jesus or the Messiah now comes to their understanding on a cross. They're looking at nails through his hand. They're looking at a pierced side. They're looking at a crown of thorns upon his head. They're remembering the cat of nine tails that was laid to his back. But then all of that comes to this. He wasn't there because he was a criminal like the other two on either side of him. He was there because of me. Honey, it will change the dynamics of the way that you think about your life when you understand that Christ was on a cross, not because he deserved to be there, not because he had done anything wrong, but he was there because of you. They're having a hard time Whew. contending with this. <laughs> but Paul said, look at this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said, but we preach Christ. That's the Messiah, the anointed. We preach Christ crucified. He said unto the Jews, what? A stumbling block. Why? Because on this side, before their understanding, we're looking for a Messiah. We're waiting for a Messiah to come. We're looking for him to come and restore all things to Israel. Man, we can't wait till he get here. Man, we're going to crown him of many crowns. We're going to uplift his name. And when they find out that Jesus was their Messiah, it was our iniquities that put him on the tree. Becomes a stumbling block to them. Because when everything was ever, just good little two-shoe waiting on the Messiah, going to support him, and whenever they seen they had put their hand against him. Yes. Yes, sir. Huh? 
Jesus' death was a big hang-up for the Jews. For Jesus to be their Messiah. It's a big hang-up his death was. Yet Daniel, the Old Testament scriptures, which they had. Daniel 9.26 in our Daniel series. Prophesied. Talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. After the 69th week, the, the Bible says that Messiah would be cut off from the earth. It said Messiah shall be cut off from the earth. And it says, but not for himself. Huh. The idea, the phrase cut off, it alludes to the fact that Messiah was going to die. He was going to be cut off, taken, if you will, from the land of the living. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word that is translated to be cut off is used at least three places throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. Leviticus 7.20, if anybody wants to know, Proverbs 2.22, and Psalms 37 and 9. And it's in these instances, these three, where it is used, that they speak of the execution, being cut off, the execution of a person that is given the death penalty for a crime. Not just being killed without purpose or reason, but this cut off is relating to the execution of a person that's being given the death penalty for a crime. Not only will Messiah die, but he will die as a criminal would die. And so that's very accurate whenever we consider that he was crucified. But it's also very accurate, Brother Gregory Howard, where we understand that he did not die for himself. He did not have any fault to be placed upon him in order to place him on the cross. As a matter of fact, Pilate, after, after examining him, told the masses, I find no fault in him. <laughs> no sin of his own placed him on the cross. But the sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl from Adam until the future is what placed him on the cross. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, Ethiopian. Someone say hallelujah. And so there was a need for his suffering. And that need was us. He was aware of our transgressions. He was aware of our iniquities and of our sins. In so much, the Bible says in Colossians 2 and verse 13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, blotting out. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. But by what method? By nailing it to his cross. In order for the handwritings of the ordinance to disappear in your life, it took a suffering on a cross. In order for that which was contrary to you to be removed, it took suffering on a cross. In order for it to be taken out of the way and for you to get out of the death of sin into the reality of life with God, it necessitated suffering on a cross. That was Jesus. That was their Messiah. That was their Christ. Aha. And so Paul is just preaching a very poignant, condensed, reader-digest version of Peter's sermon 
in Acts 2. Because if you'll remember in Acts 2, the argument and the, re, the reasoning of the scriptures in Acts 2, verse 27 was this. Peter told them God wasn't going to suffer the Holy One to see corruption. Which meant basically this. Wasn't going to allow Christ to die, go into a tomb, and his body be given to worms and things of that nature. What it related to is this. He's going to resurrect him. Verse 30, he said, and he, speaking of God, would raise up Christ. That's the term he used. He used that with great purpose. God would raise up Christ or God would raise up Messiah. And then he brings it together in verse 32. And he says, this Jesus hath God raised up. He said, God will raise up Messiah. And then he tells us who Messiah is. This Jesus God hath raised up. And he says then in verse 36, God hath made the same Jesus whom ye all have crucified, both Lord and what? Christ, both Lord and Messiah. I love Wednesday nights. I have a lot of fun on Wednesdays. And so Paul's done this. He's relayed this word. He's brought this concept of that their Christ is Jesus, brought all this home to them. And so for us modern-day preachers, so we won't succumb to discouragement, God puts these little places in here throughout the Word of God for us to observe and see how people responded to the Word in Paul's day. And so the responses to the truth, the Word of God in Paul's day was this. Some believed. Among them were several Greeks. Among them were several women that believed. But. There were some that didn't believe. As a matter of fact, I'm comforted. It even says that some of them that didn't believe got mad. <laughs> Can I go a little further? It wasn't that some of them that didn't believe just got mad, but some of them got mad enough to the place they gathered a company of people together in their opposition of madness. So someone got mad at the word. Then they found a few other people they could get in on the mad train and start attacking the man of God that had preached the word. And anybody else that was associated with that man of God, that purported truth, we'll go be mad at all of them. The Bible says they even went by the house of Jason. The house of Jason had been accommodations for Paul and his team. And so that's the first place they go. We're going to go to the house of Jason. We're going to find these people. We're mad. I got another group. of. I'm a ringleader now of mad people. If they weren't mad before, I convinced them to get mad. Because that's what mad people do. Whenever people are mad at truth, they are not satisfied to be mad at truth alone. They want to get other people on the train to be mad at truth as well. Because what they realize is they're fighting a tall tree trying to be mad at what's truth. Because truth is absolute. It's not subjective to the person. And so we, 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 got, a mad, we got a mad train going. And so the people are mad at truth. So anybody that's preaching truth, they're mad at. Anybody that's listening to truth, they're mad at. Anybody that's associated with that truth, they are, you become a target. If you in any way, shape, form, or fashion are linked up with truth and someone's mad at truth, they're mad at you. Matter of fact, they want to plague as many people as they can with their little antics and their madness. You'll get in on whatever it is that they would speak, striking negative words, slander, whatever it is that they would be saying. 
that the Bible says they even stooped long enough that they gathered some people together. More than likely, they said they were of lewd fellows, fellows of the baser sort. So they were gathering people together. Let me say it like this. That probably even didn't hold convictions that they had. They got some lewd fellows together, the baser sort. And this is what that basically means. It means that these are, were usually people that were nothing more but marketplace loafers. These were normally idle people. I'm not talking about IDOL. I'm talking about I-D-L-E. These were usually idle people. That speaks volumes to me. That the ones that are mad at truth, if they thought there was anybody that could get on the soul train of madness, it'd be those that are loafing in the marketplace. Those that are idle in the marketplace. Have you ever wondered? I thought about this just in this second. I wondered then maybe that's perhaps why the person that's looking for laborers in the vineyard, he's going constantly in the, in the marketplace and finding those that are idle and employing them in the vineyard because if he don't employ them there, the mad train's going to employ them somewhere else. <laughs> Have you been here all day idle? Come on, work. In a profitable vineyard that's actually going to amount to something. Now, so I'm comforted as a preacher. There's people that believe. There's people that don't believe. And there's people that get mad. I'm in the book. The Bible says they were moved with envy. That's, that's the actual wording. But look now. Uh, being responsible as a, as a man of God, as a pastor, my mind in all of this then turned because, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the position or get up in the morning and think, you know what, I wonder who I can just make mad today with the Bible. You know, I wonder if I can go to church on Wednesday night and just ruffle the feathers some people with truth. And man, just get them fighting mad and they can get other people and we can have a great chaotic time here right before camp. Yeah, I don't wake up in the morning with that on my mind. Not every day at least. No, it's okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking about this and I go to Ecclesiastes, the preacher, Solomon. He's called the preacher. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse number 10 states these words. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. The preacher sought to find out acceptable, acceptable words. Matter of fact, if you ever listen to me sometimes before uh, I open the word of God to preach or whatever, and I've read a text and I pray, you'll hear me if you pay attention. Maybe you don't. But sometimes I'll say, God, give, give your servant acceptable words. That's where I draw that from uh, here in Ecclesiastes. I'm just being the preacher asking God, give me some acceptable words. That which was written... And that which was written was upright. Even words, this is important, even words of truth. There's a, there's a clarifier here. Because although there may be several words we might say or several things said that could be acceptable, are they words of truth? Because not every acceptable word is a word of truth. But every Word of truth is an acceptable word. See, the, things get mixed up today because now we have, we have personalities choosing whether or not words of truth are acceptable for churches. Every word of truth is acceptable. Now look at verse 11. The words of the wise are as goads. G-O-A-D-S. I wasn't saying gold, okay. <laughs> they are that too. Proverbs says that. But nevertheless, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And so the preacher here 
He's asking for acceptable words, words of truth. He's wanting to, again, he's not ready just to go out and blast people down with his truth machine gun. Okay. He's wanting acceptable words, words of truth. And the reason why he's doing this, the reason that he was careful and was not just to tickle the ears is because he wanted people's lives to be changed by the truth that was conveyed in those words. And the fact of the matter is this, whenever we relay words of truth and we do, we can do so in the kindest and most gentlest of ways sometimes that still will not exclude somebody from getting mad, no matter how gentle and how kind you are with truth. Because when it comes down to it, they didn't have a problem with your tone. They had a problem with your content. And so please, as a side note, as a favor to me, all of you, the next time someone got mad at something I said, please don't pawn it off as though I said it wrong. I could have said it right, but it was because it was the content right that they got upset. Now here, look, these words... Are, are, are formulated, are designed to do two things. He said they are to be goads and they are to be nails. They are to be goads or they are to be prods. A goad or a prod was nothing more but a long stake that had an iron point on the end of it. It was something that you use many times with the animals when they were just kind of at ease, not doing what they need to be doing. They would take that stick, not to injure them, but to prod, to nudge them, to start to go forward, to, to, to come out of inaction into action, or sometimes to increase their speed. They would use that stick just to prod a little bit. Amen. Amen. Prod you in the right way. Amen. Sometimes in a spiritual way, we need our conscience to be prodded. Need to goad our conscience, uh, to convict the conscience. But, but that's one thing. Another thing that these well-acceptable, truthful words were, they were to be well-driven nails. Well-driven nails. Uh, his descriptive words here have reference to the nail that you would drive as a tent stake. As a tent stake. It's the idea of a sharpened spike that's being well-driven stake into the ground in order to keep a tent in place to secure it to the ground, to anchor, to anchor it. And so many times it's truth that gives us that anchor point that we need. And so here it is. These two things, goads and prods, would point us in the right direction, that they would convict us, they should direct us, but nails keeps things in place that need to be kept in place. Nails anchor us to truth. And so thank God for the goads. Thank God for words of truth that can get us in the right direction when we need to be going in the right direction. That can get us moving when we need to be moving. And thank God for the nails of words of truth that will keep some things fastened down that don't need to be moved. He said the words of truth will make the things that need to move, move, and the things that need to stay, stay. He said, because we've got into a quandary sometimes that the things that should be staying are moving and the things that should be moving are staying. He said, we got to get it right. We got the things that need to be moving. Let them move. Let them increase their speed. Let the things, though, that we should be anchored to, let us be anchored. And so goads many times, they'll motivate the sluggish. Nails, they'll, they'll, they'll somehow bring back the one that's drifting. I've known I'd had to throw a few nails down in the ground around here. Words of truth. To try to tether somebody 
that may be dripping or living on the peripheral of the church. They're on the border just a step away from the world. And sometimes we just got to nail, nail down. So you go keep right here on the border. Because there's hope. If you can keep right here. And all these words the Bible says have been given to one shepherd. Now, again, we're not, not here to be mean, not here to be insensitive. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 6, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. This next statement is going to be quite profound. Truth only makes people mad. When they don't believe or are not in agreement with the truth. Now I know that's deep. and You're probably going to have to go home and ponder on that for a while. But truth is only going to make people mad whenever they don't believe in truth or they are not in agreement with the truth that is being spoken. Because truth. People don't have truth doesn't confront people. That are in agreement with it like it does those who are out of an agreement. With it. And the fact of the matter is, Brother Howard, I can't refrain from preaching truth. I can't refrain from preaching truth because people get mad. I can't refrain from preaching truth because people are moved with envy. I can't refrain from preaching truth because of what Proverbs says there. I can't refrain from preaching truth because truth is a way that iniquity is purged. The way that iniquity is purged. But neither should we preach truth without mercy. Because mercy is the other side to the coin that helps purge iniquity. He said, for with mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. So it isn't truth alone that does it. And it isn't mercy alone that does it. Now, we have people today that fall both, the both ends of the spectrum. Bless God, if you're not merciful, people's not going to come to God. I agree with that. Then you have the other sector that says, bless God if you don't preach truth, people's not going to come to God. Well, I agree with that. Well, what's your deal, Pastor? You double-minded? No, I'm biblically minded because I understand it takes mercy and truth in order to purge iniquity. If there's somebody just over here preaching mercy and grace and all that all day, honey, that's great, but it needs a good balance of truth with it. If you have somebody else over here preaching doctrine and truth all day long, that's great, but it needs to be tempered with mercy because only if there's mercy and truth will iniquity be purged. Matter of fact, there was a few other things that Paul mentioned Later in his letter to the Thessalonians, remember, he's at Thessalonica right now. He writes back later to the church at Thessalonians. That's where we get first and second Thessalonians. Because of the church that was established right here in Acts 17, he's going to write a letter back to them. And this is something that he brings to their memory. First Thessalonians 1, 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So you know what Paul says? He kind of brings some enlightenment on this. He, only, he not only says it wasn't just truth mixed in mercy that impacted you. It wasn't just truth mixed in mercy that affected you. But it was that along with the fact that we delivered it in the power of the Holy Ghost. We spoke to it in the power of the Holy Ghost. Does that really matter? You better believe it matters. 
There's people fulfilling pulpits all across America. Some of them are speaking mercy and words of truth. But it has no impact because it's without the spirit. Oh, yes. Yes. They are speaking a living word to dead people. But they're dead themselves. They don't have the Holy Ghost. They don't have the spirit of God. They're speaking mercy and truth, but they have not the power. Paul says, I'm not just speaking mercy. I'm speaking truth, but I'm doing it in the power, in the power of the Holy Ghost. Honey, you can have the greatest order. They can have all the greatest vocabulary in the world. The best thought you ever heard from Scripture. But if there's no power and there's no Holy Ghost, they might as well be speaking at a Democratic or Republic convention because the object of change, Holy Ghost, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Not only that, Paul says, we brought it to you also in much, everybody say much, much assurance. I looked up that today in the Greek, in much assurance. It means that we came to you in the word in much assurance. Basically, to carry out fully evidence, we Gave you much assurance in that it was entirely accomplished. Not in them that were hearing, but in the one that was speaking. That's the reason why he follows it up with, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says, we brought the word with truth and mercy and power and the Holy Ghost. And you knew we lived that in our own life. Modern day lingo, you knew we practiced what we preached. We weren't up there trying to convey and convince you to do something that we hadn't practiced in our own life. You knew the manner of men that we were among you for your sake. <laughs> and so whenever they knew this, this had impact. It wasn't a covert operation. It wasn't some type of covert operation that was leaving the character or the integrity of the men to be a mystery to the people. No, they knew. I'm running trying to make 100. Paul and his team. Paul and his team were considered, in verse 6, those that had turned their world upside down. Now, we have these people that are mad. We have, we have people and rulers now that are involved. They're trying to track down Paul. They're trying to track down his team. Word has gotten around that they had been staying at the household of Jason so they go to the household of Jason because Jason had received them into his house. And they're trying to find out these men that has been spoken among the city that have turned the world upside down. Now notice, notice who's saying this. It's the world that's saying these men have turned the world upside down. Because according to the mentality of the world, what was happening around these cities was different from the norm they had known. But according to the Apostle Paul and those that were traveling with them, they had a different perspective. It wasn't that they were turning the world upside down. It's that they were turning the world back right side up. The world looked at it as trouble. But those that were a part of church looked at something as though 
they were healing a wound. They were making right a wrong. So these are the men that had turned the world upside down. And it seems that, that, that the means by which they turned their world upside down, if we look a little further down in verse 7, seems like the means by which they turned the world upside down was because of their message. Look at it. It says, verse 7, Whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. The means by which they were, quote unquote, turning the world upside down or according to the church, turning it right side up is that they, their message was accomplishing this. They claim that there is another king, one Jesus. The Greek word translated another here in this verse means another of a different kind. There's another word that means another of the same kind. But this was the another in the Greek that meant another of a, this is not the same type of of man or king like Caesar is. This is a king of a different sort. This is a king of a different kind, different from Caesar being king. And so the world is out there. Man, they're upset. Some of them are mad. They're crying foul because they can't handle it. Whenever someone's saying there is another king and people are putting themselves under the authority of this quote-unquote Another kind, another sort of king. They're, they're allowing that sovereign rule to have, 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 have power over the life. They're allowing that other master, if you will, that other lord to have some type of power over their life. These are people now that are submitting to the will of another king, a king of a different sort. Now, the Bible says in John 15 or John 19 and verse 15. This is concerning the time of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, all this. But they cried out, away with him, away with him. This is the Jews crying that. Away with him, with, away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? That's what he was called, king of the Jews. It was even above his head in three different languages. And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate asked the Jews, shall I crucify your king? The response is, we have no king but Caesar. And that statement, follow me very carefully, that statement, we have no king but Caesar, is the sad reality of living life without true faith. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar, that's living life without true faith because Jesus was a king of a different sort or of another sort. And at that time, the kingdom of God that Scripture speaks about, at that time, the kingdom of God was purely a kingdom that was within. That's what he told them. He said the kingdom is within you. And the kingdom of God was within and the people that received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that kingdom was within them, and Christ was their king. It was only later in the scriptures, or only later in time, even from now forward. It's not even happened yet. It's only later that as we study back in the book of Daniel, that there will be a stone that is cut that's without hands. 
that will come and hit, you remember that big image, and destroy all the previous kings and bring, if you will, a mountain or a kingdom up out of it. Not a earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. A heavenly kingdom that will be established on the earth. A heavenly kingdom that will bring a completion to that line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, there are various kingdoms today. There's the kingdom of this world, both in a real natural way and in a spiritual way. There is the kingdom of heaven. And to have no king but Caesar, to have no king but Caesar, or rather even to become enraged over the idea of another king of a different sort or another kind, such as Jesus Christ. Folks, is to really have our head down in the sand like an ostrich when it comes to having faith in Jesus Christ. Because I understand today in a very literal way, in a very literal way, all right? I'll try not to hold you much longer. But in a very literal way, there is a person of power in the United States known as the President of the United States that I must honor. His term is four years, unless otherwise decided by the people of these United States. He will eventually be succeeded by another president or another Caesar, as it would be. As a matter of fact, he eventually will die. But to say I have no king but Caesar is to subtract the whole idea of faith and the reality of another world. Because the reality is this, there is a king whose reign has been from the ancient of days. There is a people that did not decide to put him in his authority, but he was born into his authority. There's none that's going to succeed him because his kingdom has no end. And it's on that concept alone that turns the world upside down or if you're in the church, right side up. And it's that reality that lifts you and I up out of this temporal setting into an eternal setting. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Tunnel vision is we have no king but Caesar. Tunnel vision, and we'll get to it in other lessons coming along with the Epicureans and the Stoics and what they believe. Tunnel vision is believing all you have is this life and there's nothing beyond the grave. (laughs) Honey, I need another king. For that matter, I need him now, but I'm for sure going to need him beyond the grave. I'm going to need an authority that has power over my life. I, I, I close with this. You stand with me and we'll close with it. Scripture. We're, we're closed. With, we open with the word. We go close with the word. Ephesians 2 and 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even When we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. That's Messiah. With Messiah. By grace ye are saved. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly 
places in Christ Jesus. <laughs> they turned the world upside down by their message. They said, we got another kid. You better believe it. Let me tell you something. I'm not waiting for the place of heavenly places whenever rapture comes. I've experienced in church services around here while I've been sitting on the pew during music or during the word that I've touched heaven. There's been a capturing and a gathering together in the moment. There's been times we left this place and sister so-and-so looks at brother and so say, I don't know like you, but I feel like I've just been in heaven a little bit tonight. You know what that is? You was raptured in a moment during a church service to sit in heavenly places. And that's not because you just claim Caesar as your king. That's because you claim the eternal, the almighty God, the ancient of days as your king. And as his authority and superiority is, in a moment if he wants to, he can cause you to dwell in heavy places even while you're still yet in your earth. My God, while you're still yet in your earthly What's going on, sir? Oh, life's bad. It's horrible. It's upset. And the Christian can be walking with a smile on their face. What's your deal? I've been sitting in heavenly places with my king. I've been. Probably none of us will ever sit at a table by the President of the United States, but you, by virtue of your life, living for the Lord, can sit in heavenly places with Him before rapture ever comes. And that is the power that can set our world right side up, according to the church, or according to them, upside down. Mm. I like it. Let's just raise our hands in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, my Messiah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yes, 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 yes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Glory, Jesus. Glory, Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, from everlasting to everlasting, as David said. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you just bow your heads in this place, Master, I come to you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.